Well, tonight we continue our series called Unqualified through Hebrews chapter 11. And the heart behind this series is to see how God used ordinary people for an, an extraordinary purpose. And we saw last week that God uses these ordinary people because their faith is in an extraordinary God. In fact, we saw in verse 6 last week that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Last week, we spent most of our time defining what this word faith even means, though. If you remember, faith is not possession. Faith is persuasion. You guys forgot already. Oh, man, it's okay. Faith is not a possession. Faith is Faith is persuasion. What that means is that faith isn't something that I have. Faith is actually God persuading me to place my trust in Him. Remember, I brought the magnetiles up, and even though I can't see magnetism, we saw the evidence of magnetism. Therefore, because I've seen the evidence, I am now persuaded to believe in magnetism. The same thing with wind. I can't see wind, but the evidence of wind is there, and therefore, I am persuaded to believe in wind. There's evidence behind it. But what faith is, is faith is not a possession. Faith is faith is persuasion and God is the divine persuader. And this is really, really, really good news because what it means is that faith isn't something innately within myself that I need to prove to God how much faith I have. In fact, what faith is, is God demonstrating the evidence of who he is and how incredible and amazing he is so that when I see who he is, I am then persuaded to place my trust in him. If you remember, we looked at that little phrase that in order to exhale faith, first we need to inhale grace. And what we meant by that was in order to be people of faith, we must inhale who God is. God is good. We've seen God. We've ex- God has revealed himself to us. God has been knocking on the door of our hearts, so to speak, by his spirit, by the father. He's drawing us in. We inhale grace. God is good. God is real. God is alive. We are forgiven. We are chosen. This is who we are. We inhale grace and we exhale faith. God, I believe. God, I trust. God, I obey. God, I will follow. So faith isn't a possession. Faith is persuasion. And faith is the only qualification that God requires from us to be used by him. Which is incredibly good news because it means that we don't need to prove by our intellect, by our skill, by our communication, by our looks, by our leadership, by whatever it may be that we feel like we may need to prove ourselves to God, our morality. God says, no, it's without faith. It's impossible to please God. And faith itself is not innately found in us. It is as we're persuaded to trust in God. This is good news. Because it means that we as ordinary people with faith in an extraordinary God can experience incredible blessing by being used by him. But the reality is, is often we feel unqualified to be used by God. Often I hear, I've never gone to Bible college. I've never read the whole Bible. I've never done this or done that. Or I failed last week. I messed up here. I messed up there. I just got an argument with my spouse there. Surely God would not and could not use me. But what we are doing here in this series is we're looking at these people that are recorded in Hebrews chapter 11, which is referred to as the Hall of Faith. 
And as we look at these heroes of the faith, what we're going to see is that they are ordinary people. They are ordinary people that were failed, people that failed, people that made mistakes, people that had a lot of issues. But the question does come up, what happens when I struggle in the faith? What happens when I feel like my faith is failing? What happens when I mess up? Well, if you've ever asked yourself those questions, you're in good company. Because the author of Hebrews is actually writing to a group of people. And these group of people, the Hebrews, these Jewish people, they were people under intense persecution. And because of this intense persecution, their faith was failing. In fact, their faith was failing so much so that they were considering leaving the faith altogether. They were considering leaving the gospel of Jesus to go back to following Jesus by rules and regulations. They were considering leaving Christianity and going back to Judaism. They were considering leaving the gospel and trusting in Jesus and walking by faith to going back to trying to please God by their works and their actions. This is what they were considering. In other words, their faith was teetering. Their faith was failing. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing is for the first 10 chapters of the book, he is making a statement that Jesus is better. That Jesus is worth following. Don't hold back. Don't stop following Jesus. In fact, all of the Mosaic law that you're thinking we're going back to, all of it points to him. All of it was a foreshadowing, a metaphor, an illustration, a type of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is better. Jesus is worth it. Continue in the faith. Then Hebrews 11 comes along. And we see these individuals in Hebrews 11. These heroes of the faith. And what we see is that even them, they struggled with failing faith. They struggled with faith that wasn't as heroic as we may think at first glance. So today we're going to look at Abraham. Abraham and Abraham's faith. Read me, read with me again there, the beginning of verse 8. I want to read those first four words. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Abraham obeyed. Everyone say obey. Now, to the writers and the audience of the book of Hebrews, this would have been kind of astounding because Abraham was a famous character. But if you really look at the life of Abraham, the life of Abraham wasn't that he completely obeyed. In fact, he eventually obeyed. Abraham partially obeyed. At the end, Abraham obeyed. But to say that by faith Abraham obeyed seems at first glance a little bit of a stretch. Because if we really look at the life of Abraham, Abraham was, sure, he was the father of faith. But we could also say he was the father of failure. Abraham did not have the perfect track record. And so tonight what we're going to see is about this Abraham. How did this Abraham obey? We're first going to look at some of his failures. We're going to look at the real nitty gritty parts of Abraham's life that scripture records for us to increase our faith and increase our hope. But it's important to understand this. It is possible to be both a person of faith and a person who fails. 
It is possible to be both a person of faith and a person who fails. The life of Abraham introduces this perfectly. But by way of introduction, I do want to show you this. That Understand the context there. Hebrews, thinking about going back to the Mosaic law, why Abraham is so important is that Abraham was highly revered to the Jews as well. Abraham being the father of faith, they recognized Abraham. Abraham was a superhero in their book. But what's important to know about Abraham is that Abraham came 400 years before the law was given. Now the law, the Mosaic covenant, now Moses was like the ultimate rock star to the Jews. Moses was like the ultimate guy. What did Moses say? They were constantly obsessed with Moses. But it's interesting. Abraham comes even before Moses, before the great deliverer. We read that Abraham walked with God. And with this, let's go to Genesis chapter 12. If you have your Bible, you can turn back there. You don't have to, though, because a lot of these verses are going to be on the screen. But there in verse 8, we read that by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called. So I want to go back to Abraham's calling. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, we read this. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went. Here, God is calling Abraham, or Abram at the time in Genesis 12, and we see this incredible phrase, Abram went. God called him, and Abram went. At first glance, you're like, yes, Abraham did obey. Abraham did, he's off to an incredible, incredible, incredible start. God called, he answered, he's going. Wow, Abraham is the man. Abram, he is the real deal. But at further glance, you have to consider the rest of verse 4. It says, so Abram went. And Lot went with them. And Lot went with him. And Lot went with him. This is interesting. I didn't catch this ever before. But if you notice, the Lord's calling on Abraham's life is that he would leave three things. His country, his people, and his father's household. Well, Lot was Abram's nephew. And Abram was called to leave the Earl of Chaldees, which was back then, ancient time, Mesopotamia. And there was a place of idolatry. It was a place of a lot of idol worship and false gods. And he was called to leave that place, to go to a place he didn't even know where he was going. He was going into the unknown at first. God called him and he was just going. But he was called to leave his country, his people, and his father's household. We read, so Abram went and Lot went with him. Failure number one in Abram's life. Right there where you think Abraham's this incredible man of faith. Well, it was partial faith. It was partial obedience because he took Lot with, with him. He wasn't supposed to go. He was supposed to go out from his father's household and he brings Lot along with him like, hey, you know, I'm going to follow this God that's calling me, this, this almighty God, but kind of as like a, a safety net, I'm going to bring Lot with me. Lot, you and your people, you're going to come alongside with me. And he's taking Lot along with him. Instantly, it's already partial faith. 
It's already partial obedience. And later in the life of Abraham and, or Abram, we would read that this issue, this would become an issue of him bringing Lot. There would be issues that are going to come up. Eventually, they're going to have to separate. But the point is this. The point is, it's right at the beginning. There was partial faith. Now, pause there for a moment. This should encourage you. Because as we are called by God, we have a similar calling to Abram. Because really, Abram's calling was this. He was called from idolatry to an inheritance. From idolatry to an inheritance. Now, the word idol can simply be defined as a God replacement. He lived in Mesopotamia, a place of idolatry, a place where there was a lot of idol worship, where there was false gods. Well, so too, whether we know it or not, we have, as human beings, have been designed to worship. And before we began to worship Jesus, before we were by faith persuaded to place our faith in Jesus, we too worshipped an idol. The idol might have been ourself. It might have been our career. It might have been success. It might have been approval. It might have been pleasure. It might have been feelings. Whatever it may be, it's simply whatever is on the throne of our heart. And when God enters into the picture, what he does is he calls us from idolatry, from serving the world, from serving everything else, to an inheritance. Now, the inheritance for Abraham that he was being called to was this land. Our inheritance, according to Ephesians chapter 1, is Jesus, and we are referred as Jesus' inheritance. What incredible privilege. But God's calling upon Abraham's life. And even there, as we're pausing real quick to consider God's calling in our lives, as we begin to follow Jesus, can we all agree that sometimes our faith fails? Sometimes it's a little bit rocky. Sometimes we're like this. I've got my plan to follow Jesus, but I got plan B just in case it doesn't work out. This seemed to be Abram. Abraham begins there in his life and he's following what God has called him to do, but he's got plan B with him. His name is Lot. Eventually, it would become a problem. Now, we're only two verses after God called him and here we will see that Abram fails again. What Abram will do is he'll go out from Mesopotamia and he will actually go across the land of Canaan. He will go across the promised land. He will go across his inheritance. And in Genesis chapter Chapter 12, verse 10, we read this though. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Failure number two. Partial faith, partial obedience, number two in the life of Abram. Abraham was called to a land. That land would be the land of Canaan. And rather than trusting and believing in God, that God would call him and sustain him, what happens is when life got difficult, when life was now struggling, there was a famine in the land, he went down to Egypt. He went back to the world. He veered off course. And we actually read that it's in Egypt. If you remember, there's going to be another problem we're going to see later in the life of Abraham. But it was in Egypt. He would pick up a cute Egyptian slave girl named Hagar that would cause a lot of problems for Abram later on. Abram went down to Egypt. Abram, the father of faith, is faltering once again. Abraham, the father of faith, is failing once again. He's going down into the land of Egypt. So, strike number one, he's going with Lot. 
Safety net, plan B. Strike number two, he's going to Egypt. Strike number three, once he gets to Egypt, what's he do? He begins to lie. We read this in Genesis chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. When the Egyptians see you, he's speaking to his wife, Sarah, he, or Sarai at the time, he says, this is my wife. His wife was beautiful. If they see you, they, they will kill me. But if you say that you're my sister, they will let me live. It will all go well with me. In other words, notice this. He gets down into Egypt. And even church history tells us that Sarai was just incredibly beautiful. And he knew that the Egyptians would want to take Sarai to be one of their wives. Now think for a second. God has already made a promise and called him saying that he would go out to a far country, that he's got these plans for him, and already he's thinking, well, I don't know about that. His faith is failing and he's thinking for himself. It's actually really, really, I think it's kind of funny, but it's like really bad husband card. He says, they're going to kill me, lie to make sure it will go well with me. In other words, Abraham's just thinking about himself. He's not even thinking about his wife, Sarai. His eyes are all on himself in this moment. Another moment here, his faith is failing. He's lying to the Egyptians. We read eventually somehow what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. He leaves with a bunch of possessions. Those possessions are going to end up being a problem later down the line too. But what's the point? The point is this. Is that so far, we're just a few verses. We're a few chapters in to the life of Abraham, the father of faith. And here he's already failed three times. Here his faith has already faltered many times. And as you pause and consider your own life, how many times as we have begun to follow Jesus, have we also veered off course? Have you ever gone back to the world and played with the world? Been tempted to go back and trust in the world and trust in yourself? You're only thinking about yourself like Abram rather than what God has for you and for others. Well, if you have, you're in good company because Abram did as well. And what's so beautiful, though, about the life of Abram is that we read next, the, the real harm, hallmark, the transition in the life of Abram, we read this in Genesis 13.4. There, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. He leaves Egypt. It doesn't work out. He hits back at rock bottom. He's failed. And what does he do? Rather than running away from God, rather than sitting there in all of his failures... He calls upon the name of the Lord. He calls upon the name of the Lord. And again, the the connection that we can have with Abram, that even after failure and failure and failure, here Abram too, is he's calling upon the name of the Lord. And we see that God meets him there. In fact, he creates an altar there in Genesis chapter 13. And later in the chapter, we read in verse 12 that Abram settled in the land of Canaan. So God's call, go to leave your country. I'm calling you out of Mesopotamia, the Earl of Chaldeans, going to a place that you do not know. Here he is now in the promised land and he's settling there. After many, many failures, here he is. He's dwelling. We read that he dwelt there in the promised land. But the idea of dwelling carries the idea of this. To dwell is to dwell as a foreigner or as a sojourner. 
And so here, Abram is living in the land that he's promised, but he hasn't fully possessed the land that he's promised. He's living in a tent. In other words, he doesn't own a home in the promised land. It really hasn't become his. He's just still passing through as if he's a foreigner or a sojourner. But he's settled there. He set up shop. But he's just living in a tent. He hasn't fully received the fulfillment of the promise. And so we read for a couple chapters, he's doing great. He, he ends up winning some, some battles and some wars. And then he meets this interesting character, character Melchizedek. And then we read this though, that as he's settling in the land of Canaan, as he's there and he's dwelling, we read this in Genesis chapter 15. That there, as he's in his tent and he's been there now for a while, We read from verses 3 to 6 that Abraham gets real, real, real honest with God. He says this, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. In other words, God, you haven't fulfilled your end of the bargain yet, so hear me, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. My my servant, he's going to be the heir of, of all that you've promised. He's now telling God what's going to happen, and the Lord responded to him. In verse 4 we read, The word of the Lord came to him. And he says, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Then get this, he took him outside. I think this is really, really cool. If you could just pause here and consider, imagine it in your mind. Abram has failed, he's failed, he's failed, he's failed. But he's called upon the name of the Lord. He's now dwelling, he's settling there in the promised land. But he hasn't fully possessed the promised land, nor has all the fulfillments of the promise come. He has not yet born children, and he is getting old. His wife is old. They are past childbearing ages. And so he's complaining in his tent. And I got to ask you, have you ever been on a journey with Jesus? You're following Jesus and you get to a place where you've called upon the name of the Lord, but now you find yourself and your lot in your place, and you're complaining to him. God, man, I thought you promised this. I thought you're going to pull through here. God, this is not what I thought it was going to look like. You're discontent, to be honest. You're struggling. You're disappointed. You're experiencing difficulty. This is where Abram's at. He's like, God, why haven't I possessed this land yet? I'm here Why am I still living in a tent? Why aren't I at home? I thought this land was going to be mine. Where's my children? Where's this inheritance? Where where is everything that you promised me? He's struggling with God. But that's the key. He's struggling with God. He's talking to God in the midst of his disappointment and his difficulty. And what does God do? God reminds him of the promise. And then this, I love it. He takes them outside. And he says this to him. He says, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, Abram. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and it credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Abram's in his little box in life, disappointed, in just struggling, discontent. He's crying out to God and God shows up and he's like, come out of your tent. Come out of your little box that you're so focused on. Come out and look up at me and look up at the stars. In other words, what does God do to Abram? He makes him change his perspective. 
I love this because it goes back to what we saw last week. And the moment where he felt like his faith is failing, what is God doing? He's re-persuading him. The divine persuader doesn't stop persuading. What does he do? He gets Abram out of his little box of discontentment and disappointment and covenant, uh, grumbling and complaining. And he's like, God, or he's like, Abram, look at me. Look at the stars. Look at my promise. And we read, Abram believed. He was convinced. The evidence was there. He was persuaded. God, I believe you again. And it was counted to him as righteousness. He's made right with God. In other words, God's not mad at him. God's not slapping him upside the head. Abram, why didn't you believe by now? I've shown up a couple times. I've made this promise to you. No, he doesn't condemn him for his discontentment. He's there re-persuading Abram. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And I got to encourage you real quick. If you're in a place, if you're disappointed, if you're grumbling and complaining and you feel like God isn't working in the way that you thought he would work, would you talk to him? Would you say, God, can you re-persuade me? God, can you show me God, can you take me out of my little box? Can you take me outside and make me believe in you? Can you show me the evidence of what you desire to do in my life? Talk to God about it. This is what Abram does. Abram takes him, or God takes Abram outside and he re-persuades him. But even after this momentous moment in Abram's life, Even after God gives another promise, we read this in Genesis 15. We read, actually, that what God does after this, and in the same context, is we read this. In Genesis 15, from verses 7 through 11, this is an incredible portion of Scripture. We read this. Let me me turn there real quick. I think I lost it here in my notes. Hopefully it's up there. On the screen. Let me read to you Genesis chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. It was counted to him as righteousness, and then God said this to him I am the Lord who brought you out from the Earl of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. In other words, remember my faithfulness, Abram. And he said, Abram said to him, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? In other words, get this God just showed him the stars. We read that Abram believed God and it was accounted to him to righteousness. And now he's already questioning God again two verses later. Can you relate or what? I can. He's questioning God already. He's like, how do I know that I will possess it? God, show me. Show me some evidence here. Repersuade me. In other words, verse 9, we read, And he said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, and a female goat, three years old a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these things. He cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Okay, pause. What in the world is going on? Like what? God brings him outside. 
shows him the stars, reminds him of the promise. Abram believes, counts it to him as righteousness. Now Abram's questioning God. It's like, God, show me. How do I know that I'm a possessor? So what God does, it's called a theophany. God literally comes in the form of a man, and God does this crazy sacrificial thing. And at first we're like, what is this weirdness going on with this heifer and the goats? These animals, why are they cutting up in half? But it was all to point to a contract. Now, this is really interesting. According to David Guzik, he says this, In those days, contracts were made by the sacrificial cutting of animals, with the split carcasses of the animals lying on the ground. The covenant was made when parties to the agreement walked through the animal parts together, repeating the terms of the covenant. The Lord made in covenant in Genesis fifteen eighteen, And is literally the Lord cut the covenant. He's cutting this covenant. So, Back in those days, in order to make a contract, you know, it's like blood brothers, like, you know, give me the, there's a contract going on. What would happen is they would cut these animals and they would cut them in half and two parties that were making an agreement would walk through them. And what they were saying is that if I do not hold up my end of the bargain, I'm as good as dead like those animals. Now, interesting, right? But get this, after God says, prepare these animals, set them out, and he prepares these animals, we read this, that the sun was going down and a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. We skip down to verse 17 of Genesis 15, and we read, when the sun had gone down, and it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. This is so cool. Get this. The contract was based on two mutual people making an agreement. That means if both people walked through, they were both held accountable to keep their portion of the contract. But what happens is after God has Abram set everything up, he has a deep sleep fall upon Abram. And a deep sleep falls upon Abram. And when Abram wakes up, what he sees is God walking through the midst of the contract. God is walking through those two halves. In other words, Abram didn't have to walk through, which means Abram didn't have to fulfill his end of the bargain. God is saying, this one is all on me. So it's not even a contract. It's a covenant. It's not a contract because it's not based on two mutual agreements. It's a covenant. It's a promise only coming from God saying, I will provide. You just stay there and rest. What a beautiful picture of Jesus. We'll get there in a moment. But Abram witnesses all of this. God has now given him a promise. He's now shown him a covenant. He's made this covenant with Abram. And get this, after this, we come to Genesis 16. And in Genesis 16, we read of Abram's greatest failure. 
What Abram does in Genesis 16 is he says in verse 1, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. It's like, dude, the father of faith? The father of failure. It's like this guy called promise. God, I call upon your name. God makes this covenant with Abram. He's like, I'm going to give you as many descendants as there are the stars. Literally the next chapter, Sarai's coming up to him like, we way past barren age. We're old. It's not going to happen. Go into Hagar. That's, that's, in other words, take the matter into your own hands, Abram. Now get this. Pastor Paul in Galatians chapter 4 comments on this. And Pastor Paul says this in verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted metaphorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar and the other is the promise, is, is the covenant by I promise. This is incredible. Because get this. The whole point of that whole cutting of the animals. Was to say. Abram. This isn't on you. This is on me. This is my promise. And the next chapter. It's Sarai saying. Abram. It's not on God. It's on you. Fulfill your end of the bargain. Do what you can do. Do it in the flesh. And he has Ishmael. And Ishmael would be a thorn in the flesh to Israel, to Isaac, to his descendants. Till today. We're literally witnessing it in 2021. The problem. The failure of Abram here. Here is the father of faith trying to work. This isn't faith. This is works. He's trying to work it all out. That's Pastor Paul's whole point. Is that the Mosaic Covenant was a covenant based on works. To show works that leads to death. All to point to Jesus. That we can't do it in ourselves. That we need a savior. And here Abram has Ishmael. It's all by works. And Isaac is by promise. God is promise. God has made a covenant. It's not by works that we're saved. It's by grace through faith that we're saved. And this is in Genesis. How cool. Here is Abram right after this experience of this covenant. This incredible, amazing promise that God makes to him. And it's his greatest failure that we're experiencing today. The descendants of Ishmael are still fighting against the descendants of Israel. It all goes back to Abram, the father of faith. And we read this though. This is the goodness and the faithfulness of God that in Genesis 17, the next chapter in verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty Walk before me. Even after Abram has failed, has failed, has failed, and has failed, God is still pursuing Abram and saying, I'm the Lord God Almighty. Walk with me. An invitation. An invitation after failure. I don't know where you're at tonight. If you're here in this room or watching online, but you have experienced failure and the enemy is saying, God can't.
can not use you. Can I tell you to look at Abram? We serve a God, a God of forgiveness. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. Here is God pursuing Abram. And Abram would have Isaac. And here in Hebrews chapter 11, he is the father of faith. More verses are given to Abram than any other person in the hall of faith. And not one of his failures is mentioned. Why? What can we learn tonight? What are the applications to our lives? Understand this. We're almost done. That God forgets failures and remembers faith. God forgets failures and remembers faith. Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Why is it in Hebrews chapter 11 that no failures of Abram are recorded? Because it's after the cross. The sins of Abram, the sins of Gideon, the sins of Samson, the sins of Noah. Noah got drunk. Gideon was fearful. Samson was a hot mess. And after all of this, after all of the cross, not one failure is mentioned. Does that encourage us today that we too, as a people of faith, God does not hold our failures above our heads, but because Jesus came and he bled and he died for me, he is the ultimate covenant, that covenant that the cutting of the sacrifices, God walking through, Abram resting, it was all a picture of Jesus that God saying, this is all on me. I've made the promise. I made the way. There's nothing you can do about it. Sit there and watch me. We now get to sit and watch Jesus. They're crucified upon the cross that by God, he demonstrated his own love to us while we were yet sinners. He died for us so that we'd be forgiven of our sin so that all our failures can be forgotten so that they can go as far as east is from the west, which is infinity, by the way. It doesn't stop. But what does he do? He remembers our faith. He remembers our faith. He remembers how you responded to him, how you believed in him. He remembers our faith. God forgets failures and remembers faith. In Genesis, every failure, every doubt, every lie, his complaints, more lies, they are all mentioned, but not his failures. Like real quick, side thing. In New Testament, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, they call righteous Lot. Peter calls, or Lot, he calls Lot righteous. That's just mind-blowing if you know the story of Lot. This guy's in Sodom and Gomorrah. And in the New Testament, it doesn't mention anything about him except he's righteous Lot. Why? Because it's on the other side of the cross. It's all been forgiven. We're not defined by our failures. We don't, we're not disqualified by our failures. We're not unqualified. That's the whole point. 
Our failures do not disqualify us from God. And get this, I love this in verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 11. We read this, that Abraham was as good as dead. It was when Abraham was as good as dead, descendants were born through him. Because this is the whole point when it comes to faith. The whole point is this, is when we realize we're as good as dead, that we have nothing to offer God, that it's not based on our works and what we have to present before him. We're as good as dead. When we realize, God, I can't, God says, I can. It is all on him. He forgets our failures. He remembers our faith. And in closing, for real, the man can come up. The second thing to understand from Hebrews 11 and from the life of Abraham is this. God persuades and pursues. God persuades and pursues. We look tonight at seven times Abram failed. The Bible actually says that a righteous man falls seven times and gets back up again. The whole point is that we allow God to convince us to get back up again. Even when Abram failed over and over and over again, God continues to show up over and over. I actually read, I think it was six or seven times that we read the words this through the life of Abraham in in Genesis. We read the words, and the Lord appeared to Abraham. The Lord continued to appear to Abraham. He continued to pursue Abraham. Even after failure, even after mistake, even, even after unbelief, God was continuing to pursue, to re-persuade him, to place his trust in God. And he does the same to us. If you failed tonight, God is pursuing you. Would you trust in him again? If you know someone who's failed, would you just show them Jesus? It's all at the cross. The forgiveness is there. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the life of Abraham and the encouragement, God, that we can forget failure. Because you have. Lord, I pray for those that might be disappointed, those that might be considering. They feel like their their faith is falling. Lord, I pray that they would get honest with you. That, Lord, you would bring them out of their tent, so to speak. They would bring them outside of their little world, of their little box. And I pray that you would re-persuade all of us to continue to believe in you. Lord, we thank you for the cross. That, Lord, we are forgiven. That it's all forgotten. God, we thank you that none of it is based on us and what we have to offer. We thank you, Jesus, for your incredible grace. Increase our faith, Lord. May we be a people of faith. May your people here at Calvary Bissa be so persuaded that you desire to use them, that we would be a confident people ready and available for you. And in Jesus' name, everyone said, amen.